Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. So we're in the middle of this series, uh, really asking the question, you know, what is the place of the church? What is the place of... Uh, this body that we're a part of? What are some of the images in Scripture that we can look at to sort of help us understand uh, the church and our relationship to this gathering of people? Because when we look at our culture and the way our culture looks at church, uh, there's a lens through which we're viewed that uh, is not always obviously positive. How many of you, like in your workplace, in your school, just feel really, really happy, joyful, completely comfortable proclaiming, yeah, I went to church on Sunday? Right? Some of us are, yeah, absolutely, like all in, right? Um, and some of us are like, oh man, I, I, I feel a little bit like my palms are sweating and my knees are knocking and, and I don't know what people are going to think if I do that. And part of that is just because of the context we're in in our culture. Uh, if you look at media, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, if you look at the church and the way the church is viewed through the lens of movies and everything else, uh, Hollywood, uh, even the news, uh, we... Um, we have images for priests and pastors and ministers that are um, not often very favorable. How many of you can think of like really wonderful, warm, kind, friendly priest characters in a movie? Is a few Father Brown, Les Mis, yeah. So, but but the rest are like these guys, right? We got the the Bourget. We've got. Um, oh, Oh, what's his face uh, from the Three Musketeers? We've got, of course, Silas, right? This uh, this kind of monk who is an albino killer, gun wielding monk, which is sort of a whole different twist on uh, the priesthood. I, I don't know if Christina, are you here? Do you mind just going up and just doing a little adjust on the screen and? zooming us in with the remote, and then we can get the words on the side. Sorry, it's something we, I could have caught us, and then, yeah, I appreciate it, Christina. Um, so, so, or else we're going to be cut off on the, on the ends. My bad, so. Um, anyway, uh, so we've got that, and, and if you look at the image down in the lower center, right, apart from everything that Hollywood has to say, there's actually some really grim reality to the church, right? We're looking at a picture of one of the residential schools. Uh, there were over 160 of them operating in Canada at one time where we were literally taking Native children out of their families, out of their communities, and trying to um, uh, take, well, the, the phrase was to take the Indian out of the Indian, right? Uh, to really uh, do something really harmful and, and dangerous and hurtful. And so we have this in our history, and we have the Crusades, and we have lots of other things. And so all of these sort of negative things about the church kind of overshadow uh, our image of what the church is. And uh, it's difficult sometimes for us in our context to uh, show the church as a beautiful, wonderful thing. It, it is. I had a conversation on social media with a friend named uh, Matt, a guy who went to high school. His grad picture's up on the wall beside uh, mine, just last night just, just talking about this and, and helping uh, a guy like him say, hey, this church thing isn't necessarily what you see in the media. It isn't necessarily what you see in the movies, that there are lots of communities like ours that are just groups of beautiful, kind, warm, uh, lovely people who are helping and caring and blessing others. And, uh, and that's sort of what we, we want to present. We want to present uh, the church in that way. But what we really want even more than that in terms of managing images and perceptions, we really want to be able to see the church through the lens that Jesus sees it, right? 
We want to be able to see the church through that lens. We want to be able to see the church the way he sees it. Um, because if we, if we look through the lens of culture, it's pretty grim. This is a quote from a guy named Jerry A. Coyne, uh, who's actually just reviewing another book, a book called um, A Manual for Creating Atheists. And he says this, Up till now, most atheists have simply criticized religion in various ways. But the point is to dispel it. In his book, A Manual for uh, Creating Atheists, Peter Bogusin uh, fills that gap, telling the reader how to gain the skills to attack the church at its weakest points. This book is essential for non-believers who want to do more than just carp about the church, but want to weaken its odious grasp on the world. It's a pretty grim agenda. Right? It's a pretty, pretty grim agenda uh, that some have for the church. But here we are, in contrast, uh, looking at Paul's message saying, uh, Paul is looking at the church and saying that, hey, God has an amazing, phenomenal purpose for it, the purpose of him preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and bringing to light for everyone what is the plan uh, for the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. His intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Like God's plan is that through you, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known in the earth. Like that's his plan. That's his plan A, that through you, uh, the glory of God would be known to rulers in heavenly places. And so from eternity, God set out to administrate the release of his wisdom. And I'm really just recapping the series here. To administrate the release of his wisdom to all the church, through all the world through the church. So how does it happen? How does it work? How does the glory of God get known? through you. And then we, we said this audacious phrase that the cosmos, the world, the universe cannot get what God is giving unless it comes through you. And that's a pretty bold statement. How many of you feel a little, little weight on your shoulders with that, right? A little responsibility, a little, uh, a little bit of a sense of, hey, there's something here for me to do. And in reality, there's 26,000 people who live within driving distance of, of our church community who just don't know anything about the love of Jesus. It's, it's 26,000 people who just don't know anything about a, a relationship with Jesus, friendship with him, uh, let alone the manifold wisdom of God. So there's kind of a task in front of us. And so the purpose of this series is to just build you up, to build us up. And that's sort of my heart in this, is that we would begin to realize uh, as a church, as people, as a family, who we are and who we're meant to be. You begin to see yourselves and we begin to see our church uh, through the lens that Jesus sees us. Because even us in the church, we wrestle with the negativity about ourselves, right? Very often there's an issue of self-image attached to, to our, our life in the church, right? Like we carry sometimes an embarrassment or carry sometimes a shame about the works uh, of the church in the past. How do we move forward with boldness and confidence and courage, realizing that God has ordained this thing to, to fulfill a purpose in the earth? And so we've looked at some different images. We looked at uh, living stones. Uh, you'll remember we had a little setup here with bricks around. We were playing with bricks and talking about how God's building you into a building. He's building you into an edifice. He's building you into something that can be seen, something that's visible, something that it is apparent to the world that, that it is. It is there, it is standing, it exists. 
Um, and then we looked at this, we looked at a royal priesthood, and this is the only cool image of a priest I could find. Um, so that guy, um, and and because and priesthood, like we showed earlier, that's not necessarily a favorable language. That's not nice language. You say priest, people, many of them just have a negative reaction, even just to that word, right? But yet it's a biblical word. So there's something for us to see there in that we're meant to have one hand on God and one hand on humanity, uh, communicating the heart of God to humans and the heart and the needs of humans to God, that there's a priestly role that's for us in the church. That's another piece of it. And then this next image that we're going to talk about today is the bride of Christ. And that's a really weird one, especially if you're a dude. Right? <laughs> right? Oh, no, I was we sang that sloppy wet kiss song again. How many of you noticed we sang the sloppy wet kiss song again? That was planned, just to help you get in touch with your uh, sloppiness of Jesus' love for you. Uh, like, isn't that a super weird song? Right? It's a super weird song, right? But it speaks about an intimacy and a love between you and the Father that, that is intimate enough that it actually makes us, some of us, uncomfortable. Right? Um, so we, we think about the bride of Christ. I, I switched it up. I brought us a Middle Eastern image because we don't want to have this thing so firmly rooted in the West. But uh, so this is maybe a Middle Eastern bride and what she might look like. And we see the incredible beauty of this, uh, this person. We see the incredible beauty of, uh, of this bride. And we want to begin to see the church in the way that Jesus sees a bride or in the way that a man sees a bride. And I remember what that was like. I am told that on the day I was married, my two outer sides of my uh, mouth were somewhere pinned up here around my ears. That it was like, how many of you, were some of you there? My dad was there and my sister was there. And I was like, <coughs> I was like, grinned like an idiot the whole day, right? Because I was so excited about this relationship. So excited about my beautiful Anna and getting to marry her and do life with her, right? I literally, how many of you remember from your wedding days, your faces actually hurt at the end of it? And it wasn't just from the photo session. It was just like, woo, right? Like, come on, I'm getting to marry this woman, right? It's excitement. And you got to imagine that that is the look, the thought that Jesus has about the church that everybody else hates. Right? We have to see through his eyes. Um, and so I just want to just pull us through the scriptures really quick. I'm just going to scam through, skim through this really, really fast. Um, the marriage imagery is clear in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. It's clear in some of those passages that we're not just talking about Adam and Eve. We see the marriages between the patriarchs and the matriarchs, between Isaac and Rebekah. We see something there between Ruth and Boaz. This incredible image of this kinsman redeemer person. Ruth is this lady who uh, is is widowed, and uh, there's something built into the Hebrew culture whereby a widow can then be taken in by a member of the, the groom's family, of her husband's family, and cared for and sheltered. There's a built into the Hebrew law and code of social services network where widows were cared for that we see carried forward into the DNA of the church and how they cared for widows and orphans, right? Bringing people who were missing their husbands into family and caring for them in a radical way, in the same way that Jesus cares for us, his church. Uh, I think actually some of the girls in the youth group are doing a, a study on Ruth right now. You're going to see some of that. Uh, we see it in Song of Songs, this book of Hebrew erotic love poetry. Lots of language there talking about Jesus and his church ultimately. 
Uh, we see in Isaiah, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Uh, we see in Ezekiel 16, and this is a, an amazing one. It says, let me just read this for you. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time of love, so I spread my skirt over you. This is God talking to the nation of Israel. Uh, my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Jesus sees our broken, bruised, beaten, and wounded church, and he covers over our nakedness and our brokenness, and he makes a covenant with us, and he washes us, and he cleanses us, and he brings us into his family. If you carry shame or you carry guilt or you carry hurt as a person, even thinking about your relationship with God, Jesus wants to cover over that and make a covenant with you and bring you into his family. Uh, looking at Hosea, Hosea is an incredible story where prophetically God speaks to one of the prophets, a guy named Hosea in the Old Testament, and says, listen, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. And that is a sign to you of what it is like for me, God, to be married to my nation, Israel, who is chasing after other gods. Marry this prostitute and feel and experience what that is like to be married uh, to someone with a wayward heart. And then he says this as Hosea describes the experience and as the Lord begins to speak to him as he, as he talks about her unfaithfulness and, and her, uh, uh, her, her wayward heart. Uh, he begins to speak the words of God calling her forward into relationship. He says, he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is God speaking to you, the church. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. God speaking to the nation of Israel saying, this is my bride, uh, my broken, wounded, wayward bride, but I'm going to call her to myself, and she will call me my husband. And the verse continues, no longer will you say my bales. No longer will you speak of the other gods. You'll just speak of me. It says the Lord John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. Uh, we see the parable of the ten virgins. The bridegroom is coming. Have your oil ready. Be prepared. Have the lamps ready. Uh, Paul's letters. We're going to look at Ephesians 5 in just a few moments. Uh, looking at uh, Revelation 21. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Um, and at the end of Revelation, the culmination of the whole Bible is this incredible calling out of the church uh, to God saying, the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears, let them say, come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. This crying out for this final marriage between uh, the church and his bride. And if you look at it all together from the front to back, you just see that the Bible is an incredible story of romance, an incredible story of love. And all of a sudden, the sloppy, wet kiss songs make a little bit more sense. Even though they still make us really kind of creeped out. <laughs> That there's something uh, beautiful about this imagery that's in the scriptures. So the question is, what does that mean, really, for us to be the object of Jesus' affection? What does that mean for us to be the ones that he wants to marry? And to begin to see the church like that, through that lens. What, what does that love look like? 
What does it mean for you as a person? What does it mean for you as you navigate uh, your journey with him? Because we look at faith in, in all kinds of different ways. Uh, for many of us, our faith is almost uh, a purely intellectual thing where we are uh, understanding and knowing and loving, uh, learning about him, learning about his heart, learning about what he said in the scriptures. And this is absolutely critical, absolutely important to have a relationship with him that's up here. But this image just does not allow us to keep this thing right up here only. It calls us to uh, understand a relationship with God that is meant to be heart to heart, that is meant to be intimate. And there's a challenge to us in that to begin to see a call to intimacy with God, a call to closeness with him. And I want us to, and of course, uh, in the scriptures, uh, this marriage thing uh, is, is really, really clearly seen in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. And we're going to just read this text. And this is, of course, a challenging text. This is one of those, how, how many of you like the wives submit to your husbands one? That's a great, <laughs> oh, son. <laughs> right? Wives submit to your husbands. So this is the text, right? Challenging, tricky uh, one we're going to navigate. We're not going to spend a lot of time on husbands and wives' relationship in it, but we're going to extract from it the beauty of the story of what it means to be uh, the church in it. Um, and so I'm just going to read it and then we'll make a few comments. But just before I begin, uh, one of the challenging things about this text is depending on what version of the scriptures you read it from, uh, that first verse, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very often, if you'll look in your Bible, there will be a large gap between that and the next verse. And, and then a big, bold writing that says, in between those two verses that says, wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> Right, that stuff's edited in by dudes, just so you know. Um, but in the Greek, uh, there actually there's not even periods between these words. Right, there's not even punctuation between these words. So we see at the end of verse 20 in Ephesians chapter 5, it ends with "In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ," which is a clear end of a thought, end of a paragraph. The next new thought is submit yourselves to one another, as unto the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands, and then husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So it talks about uh, what submission and mutual submission means in relationship, and that's what that's meant to talk about. It's meant to talk about mutual submission and what it means for wives to submit to husbands and husbands to love their wives sacrificially. So there's something really beautiful there for a whole, totally another sermon, but I just don't want you to be freaked out if you're here and you're new to church by imagining that uh, this is some kind of uh, weird thing like where wives are like locked in the closet and uh, submission and all that kind of stuff, right? There's uh, a beautiful mutuality to, to husbands and wives uh, that are, that's in the scriptures. We'll unpack that another time. Let's just pray before we read this text. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you so much for what you teach us, for what you uh, have put inside of us. Thank you so much for uh, the words that we've heard already, the things that we've learned, the journeys that we've been on of discovering your scriptures. And we just ask that as we read more, we read even some familiar texts, that it would be fresh, that it would be new, that it would be alive to us, that it would be transformative. Would your word do its work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's just read this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves. So sorry, submit yourselves to your own. Well, that happens. Uh, <laughs> submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands now, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So lots of stuff about husbands and wives there, but what we're going to do is extract from that sort of the images, uh, this sort of profound mystery where he is talking about Christ and the church. And there's three sort of key movements in that text where we can talk about uh, that. Uh, this sort of three really beautiful ideas about how Jesus loves you and how Jesus really loves the church. And so we're just going to start right here in verse uh, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blem blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, first off, does that sound like the church, you know, does that sound like OVV? Holy and blameless without wrinkle? I know I got wrinkles. Anybody else have wrinkles? <laughs> right? We're a church with wrinkles, we're a church with faults, we're a church with cracks and sometimes divisions and hurts and wounds. But Jesus is seeing us in this beautiful way. And I want to just uh, surface this first word uh, he loved, and that's our word uh, agapeo, which is really just this incredible self-sacrificial love that God has. It's a, it's a, it's a generous, uh, otherly love. But, but where we see it so beautifully is in this word, he gave himself up. God gave himself up for her. We see that, of course, as the story of the cross, right? Jesus who died for us uh, on the cross. Uh, but that word means uh, delivered over or sentence. Uh, and what it really implies is betrayed. So we think of Jesus being delivered over by Judas into the hands of uh, Pilate. Pilate uh, delivering Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. It's a betrayal. But here we see that Jesus betrays himself to love you. What does he betray? He betrays his uh, standard. He betrays holiness. He betrays majesty. We see in Philippians chapter 2, uh, for being, who being in very nature, God made himself nothing. Right? He made himself nothing. He took his nature and he laid it down to make a way to cleanse us, to make us whole. So he gave himself up for her. He sacrificed himself. He gave himself the opportunity to taste the crucifixion, to taste death, uh, to uh, go into the deep that he didn't need to do to reach you, to save you. So he gave himself up. He betrayed himself for us to make her holy. 
So he went low to make her holy. He went to the depths to raise you up, right? And so we see this incredibly uh, strong word, hagazeo, which is the same word that we see our father. How many of you have prayed this in grade school? Not, not if you're young, you didn't. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That same word used to describe the holiness of God is used to describe the holiness that God is wanting to bring to his church. Right? It's incredible to be, be to have the same descriptive word used for you as is used for uh, Jesus himself. But he ties it together. He loves that way. Cleansing her uh, by the washing with water through the word. Cleansing her. Um, and, and that's a really fascinating word there because the word that we see most often in the New Testament for word is the word logos, right? It's the word that is like the written word, the established word, the word that was there before the foundation of the word world. But in this case, uh, we see uh, Paul using the word rhema for word. And that word is like the living word, the word that is spoken out of the Logos. That's the word that is, uh, is, is what you experience when you, how many of you experienced it when you, when you read the scriptures and you open it up and you just might be reading a chapter, two chapters or three chapters and all of a sudden something happens and you read a verse or two in the scriptures and it's like, Whoa! and it just sings, Right? The scriptures just sing to you and something in the word is not just something you're processing cognitively. It's not just something you're learning, but all of a sudden the word becomes uh, alive and goes right into your heart and it transforms you and it changes you. And so there's two levels on which we, we read the scriptures. We read it as we read the law to understand it, to follow it, to obey it. But we also read it in a way that it comes alive as we pray almost every Sunday, right? We want this mystical thing to happen that when we read the word, it actually transforms us and makes us new. So he washes us by the rhema, by the word that is spoken out of the word, by the word that is spoken out of the logos. And the other thing that he's doing there is he's pointing us this whole ritual idea of washing her with water through the word. Uh, that word is also like the blessing, the spoken blessing. And what he's actually pointing to there, I think, is the mikvah bath. And it, we're not that familiar with Jewish tradition. It's not something that we, we know about. It's not part of our, our marriage practices. But part of the Jewish uh, community and part of the, the Jewish history is that when somebody undergoes a, a, a radical transformation in life, this might be somebody has recovered from cancer and they're becoming a new person. Or somebody may be converting to Judaism for the first time. Or maybe somebody uh, just before their wedding, uh, they would go into what they would call a mikvah bath. And sometimes those are attached to a synagogue or sometimes attached to homes or sometimes essentially even as a business like in New York City you can go to the mikvah as a business that's established and operates separate from synagogue or home or anything and you go into this place uh, and it's a very quiet place where you would go and you would begin to pray and begin to uh, seek the Lord and you would begin to you you'd disrobe and you would walk down in this private space down into the water and you would dip yourselves under the water three times in preparation uh, for your wedding and the first thing you would pray would be the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Chad. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. 
and you would pray that prayer of, of commitment uh, to the Lord. And you'd pray a second prayer as you're preparing for your wedding. And then as you are uh, about maybe two or three days sometimes before a wedding, this would happen. This would be the prayer that you would pray in Hebrew. Uh, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me with righteousness and with justice, with goodness and with compassion. I will betroth you to me in truth and we will come to know God. We hear this incredible prayer of commitment. What betrothal means uh, for the bride as she prepares herself for the bridegroom. Betrothed in righteousness, in justice, in goodness, and in compassion. This preparation of the heart for being joined, for being uh, married, for being connected, uh, for being uh, washed and ready to be made one with your spouse. He's pointing to that incredible work that God does in, in creating that linkage between us as humans. And then he presents her to himself. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if you catch how important that is, but who but Jesus can present you to Jesus? Any of you ever bought yourself a present? Any of you gotten yourself in trouble for buying yourself a present? <laughs> right? What, what's the best present you can ever get? Like, if you want to get the present that is the clothes that fits you, amen. Do you, sh you shop for yourself, Stacy? A little bit of a control freak like me? Right? So I wanted this tackle box once. I was, uh, I had something that I wanted for Christmas uh, from Anna, and so I told her the number of the tackle box that I wanted. And I was, it's, a, it's a 787. Uh, it's, a, it's a Plano tackle box. It's going to fit all my stuff. There's going to be a tray for lake trout stuff. And there's going to be a tray for bass and pike stuff. And there's going to be a tray for, like, walleye stuff. And I'm going to be all set. I'm going to put my knife in. It's be all organized. It's going to be great. And I told her, and she said, go shopping, honey. Go get me this tackle box. It's going to be fantastic for Christmas. Because it's really helpful to give some guidance to people when they're gift giving, don't you think? I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with that. I don't know. But so I gave her this guidance, and I go back. And so she goes back, and I, and I realize she's been in town. I think she's probably gone to get it. So I go to the hiding spot. You, you know where the hiding spot is? I went to the hiding spot and it was the wrong tackle box. She got me like a little small tackle box. So I returned it and went and got the right one. <laughs> and I put it back in the hiding spot. <laughs> right? Come on. <laughs> Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? It was a low husband moment, okay? It was a low moment. But the awesome thing was she didn't notice. So it arrived all wrapped up for me on Christmas morning. It was fantastic. It was the tackle box of my dreams, the one I've always wanted. And I had to confess to her later what I'd done. And then I was in the doghouse. But that's what Jesus has done with the church. He bought himself a present. The very one he wanted most. And it doesn't matter if she's the wrong one or she thinks she's the wrong one or she's got the wrong model number. You, you have the wrong model number. But he's fixing it up because he loves you. He loves you. He wants you. Uh, he wants you to be his glorious, beautiful bride. You're a present for himself.
<laughs> He's amazing. Ashley's just like, you're in such trouble. Yeah. And so that's what we are, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. You know, he does not see you the way the world sees you. He doesn't see you the way the media sees you. He just doesn't. He sees the future he has planned for you. He sees the work that he's doing in your heart. He sees the transformation that's happening. And what you need to know coming from this is that you are chosen. You are selected. And that you are accepted. Right? He chose you. He chose this quirky body called OVV. He chose Calvary Pentecostal and Move Church and the Free Methodist Church in town and the Baptist Church. We're all one church and he's chosen us. Right? He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. And goes on, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does. The church is loved and accepted. To agree, there's no telling where he starts and we stop. He loves you like his own flesh. And that's, a, that's a significant connection. Right? You see your faults, you see your messes, you see your brokenness. And he wants to be connected to all of that and be transforming it, right? He loves you. He nourishes. That word is like nourishing up to maturity. It's not just like nourishing you so that you would feel like you're a mature spiritual Christian. It's nourishing you so that you would grow up to being an actually mature spiritual person, right? It's a nourishment that is unto a purpose. He's not feeding you junk food. It's not Katie and Weenies, right? He's not nourishing you with Katie and Weenies. He's nourishing you with something that is meant to grow you up into maturity. It's the same word that he uses in Ephesians 6 when he's talking about uh, raise your children up in the way of the Lord. It's talking about the same kind of nourishing up into maturity, into growth. And then this word cherish is incredible. This word cherish means uh, to wrap, to insulate, to protect, to keep warm, and to keep safe. Right? He's, there's a, there's a, a surrounding and a protectiveness that he has over his church. One of the things that drives me more nuts than anything you can imagine is Christians on Facebook slamming the church. Because this protective thing rises up in me. Right? There's this thing inside of me that's like, man, like stop slamming the bride of Christ. Like this is, this is my family. These are my people. She's got wounds and she's walking with a limp and she's broken and she's hurting. But she is mine, says the Lord. Amen. She is mine, says the Lord. Uh, and this is, he, he's protective. Like he's protective. That's one of my favorite stories about my dad. 
Um, I, we were probably in, I, I guess I would have been in grade eight. Uh, we'd moved up to Edmonton, and we were up at a Dairy Queen. I don't know why I keep having Dairy Queen in my sermons, uh, but I, I love Dairy Queen. Um, or Harvey's or whatever. So, um, but uh, so we're in this Dairy Queen. Do you remember this story, Dad? Now, Amber. Yeah. So we're there. We're as a family. We're in Dairy Queen. I guess Mom and Dad had picked us up after school or some kind of activity. This is we're living up in Edmonton. You remember the old Dairy Queens where they used to have like uh, the the seats with a little divider in between, and if you're sitting with more people, you could sort of remove that divider, and you're sitting right close to another family, whatever. So we're there. We're having like a I don't. My favorite was a peanut butter parfait. How many are like all over the peanut butter parfait? It was the best. I think I remember when that thing first came out. It was fantastic. Wasn't a banana split guy. I don't know why, but peanut buster parfait and we're there and we're as a family we're having a great time we're eating and there's these teenagers that are sort of you know one bench over and they're just kind of disrespectful and mocking and kind of foul mouth like these teenagers never uh, ever would be um and uh, and i guess I don't, I don't dad would remember it better than i would but but uh, you know we're like we're all sharing we're a close family we're like hugging and sharing and here taste my peanut butter parfait and dad's like feed me some of his peanut butter parfait totally uncool when you're in grade eight but we're a close family it's all good and these kids start to sort of make fun of us right and they're starting to grind on us and, and chew on us like hey why don't you it's nice of you to feed your baby and my dad snapped stand up dad just so you get to know my dad here he's right here sweet harley summer give him a big hand a big hand yeah and I watched my dad, like, literally stand up and leap over the divider, like, with a flying leap and land on the bench. And he grabs his teenager by the scruff of his throat and says, <laughs> right? Do you want to take it outside? And I'm like, yeah, daddy. <laughs> right? But there was something in him that rose up. What are you saying about my family? Don't slam the church of God. Do not slam the people of God. Jesus is protective of her. He loves her. He is committed to her. She is his bride. Yes. Don't mess with his family. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. He cares for her. He is nurturing her. He cherishes her. And again, like with all self-deprecating awareness, we are a broken body and we have caused hurt in the world but we are his bride. And we are to call her to goodness and beauty and to be part of nurturing her and caring for her in a radical way. He feels that way about you. But I think what we want to, uh, you know, to see in this is that, you know, there's something way bigger happening than us putting on a show on Sunday mornings here, right? There's something uh, so much more that, that God has for us, that we're part of something so much bigger, right? We're, we're part of something that is 
is global. We're part of something that is uh, cosmic, cosmically significant, Amen. right, to God. Something that is so beloved by him and so adored by him and so cherished by him that he wants to unite. You know, Jesus is not your boyfriend. Right? Some, some of you remember dating way back in the day. I remember after my mom passed away, I remember my dad dating. Actually, that was super weird. Um, <laughs> much of my dad tried to pick up chicks. That was something. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm so glad he did so well with you. Like, let me tell you, uh, nice ladies, but you are just a tremendous upgrade. Thank you so much for taking him in. Um, <laughs> This is not like a, oh man, I'm, I'm going to need some help. This is, uh, I need counseling, so I'm going to need counseling. Uh, this is not a casual relationship that God wants with you, right? It's not a casual relationship. Even if you look at the progression here uh, from cleansing and preparation and washing with water to this period of nurturing, this is all before the wedding. If you want to understand as a young person why we don't believe in premarital sex, right? We want to understand our marriage relationships as being uh, something that is a significant progression towards a lifelong radical unity and commitment that symbolizes uh, what Jesus has done in his church. A long story of faithfulness and, and goodness. He is not your boyfriend, he's your betrothed, and the wedding is coming. It is a radically different worldview in terms of even relationships, right? But a radically beautiful image of, of how Jesus uh, prepares his bride to be a gift to himself. Right, and then we just, I just want to bring us into the wedding at the end here in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Just let me read the text and we'll just kind of let it stand for itself. Uh, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. What inspires that? Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Like all creation is shouting for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's how we prepare ourselves the righteous deeds, the transformation, the living out of the, the life of Christ. And the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it ends like this. This is the ending of our New Testament. This is the ending of the scriptures. This is the ending of the story. We're in this period of, of um, being engaged to our Savior. We're in this period of betrothal. The, the marriage hasn't come in its fullness yet. The church is not fully united with Christ yet. But we're to sit there and we're to wait and we're to anticipate saying, the Spirit and the bride say come. The Holy Spirit and the bride are there just longing for the consummation of this relationship. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And he responds. He says, yes, I'm coming soon. And our hearts rise up and say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And that is what our worship is like what it's meant to be every single Sunday morning, what it's meant to be when you wake up and worship in your home, what it's meant to be when you uh, worship anywhere you are. Our hands raised, our hearts raised, just saying, come in your fullness, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, come. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.